Thank you, James, for those prayers. Thank you, band. Did you notice a new vocalist hitting those high notes over there? <clears throat> How many, how many know who that is? That's Kathy Berry. She sits right outside my office. She is the defender of the senior pastor, Kathy B. So what a great gift to have you up here leading us in worship. Her husband is in the drum cage back there. So Mike and Kathy, it's quite a team. Well, it's good to be back with you, my beloved church. Last week, I did something I'd not done since I've been here. I missed Mother's Day in church. Uh, I've never not been here for a Mother's Day, but I uh, honored Mother's Day because I was with my mother and with the mother of my children, and we went back to Boston to celebrate uh, the graduation of our daughter Rachel from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Gordon-Conwell, yeah, go ahead and clap, that'd be cool. If you've never heard of Gordon-Conwell, it was uh, started by Billy Graham. So it's a really a powerful evangelical uh, seminary, and Rachel was graduating, and, uh, and she was invited by the faculty to speak at uh, commencement. She was a student speaker at commencement, which is a great honor, and she called me. She said, Daddy, a lot of the people that are coming, they don't know the Lord. They're the friends or the family of the, of the graduates, but they, they don't know, know the Lord. She says, I think I'm going to just preach the gospel. I said, you go for it, little girl. And uh, man, did she preach the gospel. I, I wore out my battery and my phone uh, recording every last word. I'm going to just keep listening to it. But it was just a powerful moment. I, I, I couldn't wear buttons that day because they would have been firing off. You know, as my chest was expanding, popping out, I was wearing a zippered thing. But um, as I was uh, just basking in the moment, I couldn't help but think with such deep gratitude of the part that our sweetheart church had played in, in shaping Rachel. This is her church. This is the only church she's ever known. I, I baptized her when we were still worshiping in the memorial chapel. And she was sitting in those pews and she went to Mexico with your predecessors and, and she was taught in Sunday school by you and, and called into ministry and trained and it was your elders who, who invited her to come under care as a candidate for ministry in our denomination. Some of you supported her financially. So this church, this sweetheart church, has had an unbelievable role in, in shaping uh, our daughter. And my, my hope is, it's not for me to decide, but I am influential. Um, my hope is, when the time comes for her to be ordained, because now she's completed everything she needs to be ordained as a, educationally, that it will be in this congregation. She'll take her vows up in this stage. She'll kneel down on these stairs. She'll have the hands of our elders laid on her and the prayers of her people praying for her, and we will launch her into, into ministry. It's not likely that she'll ever be able to serve as a pastor of this church, but we are offering Rachel as a great gift to some other church, some other part of the world, and I hope that you share a sense of partnership and ownership and responsibility for our daughter and the big weekend that we shared together last week. So I just had to share that with you. It's a pretty big deal for me. By the way, she'll be preaching here in August, so uh, you don't want to miss that. Rachel's story illustrates a really important part of an initiative that we are kind of on the downhill side of. It's an initiative called Beyond These Walls, Making Disciples That Make History. Would you just say that out loud with me? Go. Beyond These Walls, Making Disciples That Make History. And, uh, and Rachel's story reminds me of a, of a piece of that. By the way, if you're visiting with us, I want you to just relax. Yes, you have stepped into the middle of a, of a financial um, uh, initiative that we are talking about together. But if you are our guests, you have a wonderful opportunity 
Because we don't expect anything of you other than to listen in as this church talks about our future to, with each other. So you have a chance to relax. We have no expectation of you. Uh, and just eavesdrop in as we dream together of what the Lord would have for Chapel Hill in the coming five to ten years. And we are very excited about that. And given the response I'm, I'm hearing again and again, you are excited about it too. Here's the vision, and it's simply this. Your elders have reached a point where we believe we don't need another building. We don't need another chunk of land. We have so much, and we believe that time has come for us to to give ourselves away as we have never given ourselves away before, to pour ourselves into and out of and beyond these walls as we've never done it before. And and that's going to look like three things. So there are three legs to this initiative. Uh, First of all, we're going to multiply life groups. We, are, we exist for the purpose of making disciples. And the key, uh, the key method for accomplishing that is, uh, th- is through life groups. We want to double the number of life groups so that we can send them out into neighborhoods, into schools, into the community as ambassadors for Jesus Christ as never before. So that's our number one goal. We have a second goal. Our second goal is to love Gig Harbor as never before. Last week you heard Pastor Ellis talk about the unprecedented number of partnerships that we have been invited into with really significant partners like, um, like the Rescue Mission and, and WIC and the YMCA and the Boys and Girls Club and, and the Food Bank. We've never had this many great organizations come to us and say, we want to partner with you uh, for this ministry, this service of, of caring for this community. And we want to be able to say yes to more and more of those invitations. So we are excited about that. We think we don't need to reinvent the wheels. When you've got these people who are doing this great work, why don't we just come alongside of them? We don't need any more glory. We don't need any gain. It's a chance for us to support somebody doing something great for our community. So we're going to love Gig Harbor. The third part that I want to especially talk about today is releasing leaders, multiplying life groups, loving Gig Harbor, releasing leaders. Uh, Would you be surprised to hear that Rachel, when she is ordained, will be the 16th person that we have raised up and trained, mentored, ordained, and sent forth from this church into ministry in the larger church? 16, over 30 years. That is a remarkable record. By the way, we have five more in the pipeline right now. And in addition to that, over the same 30-year period of time, we have 21 who went from this church into full-time mission service. You're seeing some of the pictures behind you, some of the names that are behind you, but that means more than one a year have been sent out of our church into pastoral ministry or into work as a missionary. That is a, it really is a pretty astounding record, one we weren't even trying to do, but we realized as we were dreaming about our future that this is a sweet spot for us. This is something that God has gifted us to do. And so we are looking ahead and asking, how can, we, uh, how can we lean into what apparently the Lord has gifted us to do? And our denomination, by the way, has noticed what we are doing. Because we are one of four beta churches in the entire denomination that have been uh, invited to be a part of a new mentored pastoral training program. The goal of which is to assign young leaders to a, a seasoned pastor to help them in the area beyond just their academics, but also in the area of character development and experience, so that when we launch them, they have a chance for real success. Did you know that out of a hundred seminarians who leave seminary and go into ministry, out of a hundred of them, guess how many will retire from pastoral ministry 35 years later? Ten. Ten. Ninety percent of pastors wash out. 
It's a horrible attrition rate. And we believe that there's a better way to train young leaders. And so that's what we're committed to. And one of the prime examples of this initiative is someone that you know very well, our own Pastor Ellis. And, uh, and you, you know something of the story. He, didn't he do a great job last week sharing his passion, a different voice, a different perspective on beyond these walls? you all know Ellis and you love Ellis, but you may not know his story. And, and I thought I'd just invite him to go ahead and tell his own story. So take a look, listen to it from his lips. I was sitting in a classroom in Oxford in England. It was a Friday morning and two gentlemen walked in who were Americans and one of them sat down next to me got in a conversation with him, turned out he was a pastor of a large church. Didn't think much of that conversation. The very next day, we bumped into one another again, and he remembered my name, and he handed me a business card, and he said, when you're done with your studying, and you want to put into practice some of the evangelism and apologetics that you've been learning, give me a call. Um, That man was Mark Toon. I remember during the first year that I was here, and several conversations with Mark where he would pull me aside in a hallway or in his office and and tell me, you can't do that. You can't say those things. You need to behave in a different way. And those were hard conversations to have, but I know that without the lessons that I learned from those experiences, I wouldn't have survived as long as I did. His experiences, now 30 years of ministry, came to bear in those moments. One elder, Rosemary Lukens, she was a part of a one-year program where we got trained on the other aspects of pastoral ministry that seminary really doesn't prepare you for. And the way that she poured into us in that year has set me up for a future in, in ministry that I wouldn't have got from seminary. I also think of Greg Colbo, who's an elder, and the way that throughout the years he has continued to speak into my life and reaffirm the sense of call. Uh, I remember one instance three years ago now where uh, Rachel and I had made the difficult decision to leave and go home to England. And Greg spoke to me and he said, Ellis, you're making this decision for the wrong reasons. The question you need to ask yourself is, are you called to Chapel Hill? And are you called to be a pastor? And that was a turning point where in the course of a weekend we changed our mind and it's the reason we're, we're still here today. So I'm thankful for those who've poured into my life. So three years ago I joined the Y and I started going to a boot camp class early in the morning to develop relationships with those outside the church. And I discovered a, a great community, deepened relationships with them and after about a year I said to a few of them, hey, how would you feel about studying the Bible together? And so we started a Bible study in this very room that I'm sitting in the chapel here at the Y. And out of that Bible study and out of those relationships, out of that community, I've seen people come to profess faith for the first time. I've seen people come back to church. I've seen people step out in leadership and service in ways that they haven't. I've seen disciples making disciples. I was approached by the Y and asked whether I would consider becoming a chaplain someone who is present in the why and is showing people the love of Jesus. And I thought, well, I'd love to. And so that's what I'm now doing, five hours a week beyond what I was already doing, 
I am here at the Y, speaking with members, speaking with staff persons, and seeking to be Jesus. For Chapel Hill to step up and pour themselves really intentionally into young leaders and raise them up and send them out, the impact that that could have upon the church across the United States and across the world would be tremendous. I know that pride is a sin, but if there's any holy version of it, I'll bet it's kind of welling up in many of us when we think of the privilege we've had of being a part of shaping such a a remarkable young man. And I don't think any of us have a doubt, do we, that in in being a part of Ellis' life, that we have been making a disciple that's going to make history, right? We think that's going to happen. So this is an exciting part of the initiative that we are talking about. And this idea of making disciples that make history is, is the journey that we've been taking these few weeks out of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a remarkable account of how Jesus takes these green recruits that he calls from the boats and from the tax table, and, and he t- shapes them and transforms them into people that post-Pentecost would make history, would change the face of the world. So we're, we're looking at that together in this journey. This is not just a fundraising initiative. This is a discipleship initiative. And so we're looking at those touchstone moments. For instance, the call. That was the first one we talked about. Remember, the call of Jesus comes to you and you and you and you individually. We cannot just hide in the crowd and hope that we'll be kind of collected with it. Every one of us must listen to the call of Christ and respond individually. And then last week we said that the, 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 the disciple that makes history must be conspicuous. We've got to be salt that savors that which we tover, touch. We've got to be light that pulled out from the, the, from the basket and shines on all that is dark in the world. So we've got to respond to the call. We've got to be conspicuous. And then today we talk about courage. Courage. And it comes from the story that Pastor Megan read in the early part of this service. It's this wonderful story of uh, Jesus walking on the water. You've all heard that, right? Raise your hand. That's, a, that's, not a, that's not a new one to you. Every gospel except for Luke includes that story, so it must have had an impact on them. But it is only Matthew who tells the rest of the story of Peter who in response to the coming of Christ climbs out of that boat and makes his way towards Jesus and then begins to sink. Many commentators, and if you go back, there are hundreds and hundreds of years there have been commentators on the Gospels. Many commentators uh, criticize Peter for this. Did you know that? They they considered that what he did was presumptuous. It was was rash. And, uh, And that's not hard to believe when you remember the kind of guy Peter is, Peter was always leaping before he looked, right? That was his nature. He, he would leap before he looked. There was a time in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which I'm going to preach about next week, one of the most beautiful places in the Holy Land. And Jesus told his disciples, you know, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to rise from the dead, but you just need to know this is coming. Peter, thinking him to be a tough guy, he said, oh Lord, that will never be. He rebuked Jesus. That's the words. So that was pretty rash. There was a time in the, the Last Supper when, uh, when Jesus said, well, or when Peter said, well, Lord, I don't care. Who else might de- deny you or betray you? I will never deny you. Remember that? And then there was the time in Gethsemane where Peter pulls out a sword. He wasn't a very good swordsman. He was a fisherman, but he, he took a whack anyway and cut off some poor guy's ear. So we, we know that Peter is capable of being kind of rash, kind of acting before he thinks. 
And a lot of commentators think this is one of those examples. He just jumps out of the boat before he's really thinking about it. So what do you think? Do you think that Peter was just being rash and impulsive? Is this just one more example of Peter that gets ahead of himself? Yes or no? I don't think so either. And you know why I don't think so? Because the response of Jesus, the response of Jesus, Jesus never had a problem knocking Peter down a peg or two. Never. For instance, those accounts I just gave you, when he pulls out the sword, remember Jesus said to Peter, nope, Peter, put the sword away. He that lives by the sword will die by the sword, right? And, and then there was a, at, uh, at, at the Last Supper when, uh, when Peter said that no matter what, he would stand by him, and Jesus said, really, Peter, you think so? I tell you this, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And then probably the biggest slap down that Jesus ever delivered to Peter was in Caesarea Philippi after he says, he rebukes the Lord and said, you'll you'll never never go to be crucified. And Jesus said, get thee behind me. So Jesus didn't have any trouble calling Peter out, knocking him down a peg or two. He had no problem rebuking, but that's not what happens in this story. Let me give you the context. Uh, Jesus had been ministering. He was tired. He was tired of crowds, I think. And he went up on the mountain to pray. And he sent the other guys off in a boat across the the water. I don't think he even crossed their mind. How is he going to catch up with us? If we're going across the lake, it's about eight miles that way. But they just did what Jesus said. Well, halfway across, and it was in the middle of the night. Storms come. The waves are pounding. They're having a hard time pulling. And it's getting pretty treacherous. And then they look out in the mists of the midnight and they, they see someone coming before them, to, towards them. And they thought it was a ghost. They screamed like a bunch of little girls. They, were, they, they thought it was an apparition that was coming towards them. And, and Jesus identifies himself. He calls out and says, hey, take, you know, take it easy. It's, 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 just, it's me and, and uh, don't be afraid. Well, we, we have the, te- the text says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. But that's actually not what the, the Greek says. The Greek is much punchier and really more powerful. First of all, he says courage. He doesn't say take heart. He says courage. And then instead of it is I, he says literally I am. Courage, I am. Where have you heard that that uh, two-word phrase before? Remember a burning bush? Remember Moses who's talking to the Lord who's calling him to go to uh, Egypt and deliver his people? And Moses said, well, who am I going to tell has sent me to to take all of Pharaoh's uh, slaves away from him? And the voice out of that burning bush says, tell him that Yahweh sent you. And Yahweh means what? I am. Tell him I am has sent you. So Jesus says, courage, I am, do not be afraid. And apparently Peter took him at his word because he was encouraged. And he went from being one of the frightened ones to making one of the most bizarre requests. I mean, who would have thought to do this? Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. That is not necessarily what you might expect someone to say from the boat, right? And what is Jesus' response? Come. He says, come. I mean, you could if Jesus thought that this was a presumptuous, rash, just another Peter's stupid things, he could have said, Peter, Peter, there you go again. Just, you know, dial it down a notch or two. I'm going to be in the boat shortly. Just stay right where you are. But that's not what Jesus says. 
Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come, come on. Notice, too, exactly what Peter asks. Peter didn't say, Lord, command me to walk on the water. He, he, it wasn't like he was trying to do this great spectacle that he wanted to kind of one-up the rest of the disciples uh, to prove himself better than the rest of them. He said, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. In other words, what Peter was saying is he wanted to be with Jesus. And I think Peter's beginning to grow up. This is 10 10 chapters since his call back in chapter 4. And we're beginning to see the impact of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Walking with Jesus is beginning to change who Peter is. And he is learning that the safest place to be, no matter your circumstances, no matter the waves or the wind or the storm, the safest place to be is as close to Jesus as you can be. And if that meant walking out on water in a miraculous way, then Peter was up for it. And notice this too, because he is learning something here. He doesn't just jump out of the boat and then ask permission on, on the way down into the water. He said, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. And he waits for the invitation. And when Jesus says, come, he steps out. Now, it's true that after he'd taken a few steps, he began to notice, what am I doing out here? The water is, you know, and he begins to sink. It is certainly true that he lost faith and, and he began to go down. It's certainly true that the Lord actually reprimanded him a little bit. But I got to believe that it was kind of a soft reprimand. Don't you think there was a part of the Lord's heart that said, yeah, I know you're sinking and you are still got, don't have enough faith, but... There's a part of him that must have been saying, I'm proud of you for getting out of that boat. I'm proud of you for mustering the courage. I'm proud of you for stepping out in a way that nobody else in that boat was willing to do. I just think he was proud of him. One of the most courageous things to pray is, Jesus, command me. Think about that. Jesus, command me. Lord, I want you to tell me what to do. And whatever it is, whatever it requires... Whatever it might cost me, I will still obey. It doesn't mean that we might look foolish. Yes, it does. There are some times when we step out in obedience to the Lord and we do look foolish. It might even mean that we fail. And we might mean that we sink. I mean, because he had, Jesus had called Peter didn't mean that he was immune from that. In fact, one of the early church fathers criticized Peter for getting out of the boat, and he praised the 11 disciples who remained inside. He thought that the boat was a metaphor or an allegory for the church. And so he praised the 11, kind of ridiculed Peter, praised the 11 that stayed within the safe confines, the the security of the church. They waited patiently for the Lord to come to them, and only when he had come in did they then worship him, unlike Peter, who was so presumptuous. I'm sorry, but I don't see it that way at all. I think the other 11 were weenies by comparison to Peter that night. Don't you? We may mock Peter for his impulsiveness. We may criticize him for losing faith in, 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 uh, in when he saw the waves. But you've got to give him this. He was the only one who was all in. He was the only one who bid Jesus to command him to come. He's the only other human being who's ever walked on the top of the water. And even when he failed, even when he doubted, he was the only one who experienced the touch of Jesus, who saved him from death to life, who raised him up, and who escorted him back to safety. He's the only one that experienced that. 
And I think that this experience with the supernatural marked Peter forever. He went from being the timid one, the one who denied Christ three times. He went to being the one who post-Pentecost stands up there and proclaims the gospel to the thousands that are gathered. 3,000 come to Christ in one day. And ultimately, he went to being the one who, had, instead of denying Christ, he was crucified on a cross upside down because he did not count himself worthy to die in the same fashion as his Lord. I think that this moment of courage, of trusting Christ, of bidding his command and then obeying it, I think this moment of courage steeled him for what was to come. I consider this parable, uh, I consider this a parable in, the, in, the moment, in this moment in the life of our church. It is so easy for Christians to remain in the boat, to remain safely behind the walls secure and coddled and comfortable. And it is hard, some might even say a little bit crazy, to step beyond the walls and into a very tumultuous and dangerous world. And it takes courage. And there's a chance that we will fail and a chance that we will sink. But if Christ is calling us to come, what better place to be? The elders of your church, your elders, your elected, appointed, anointed leaders have prayed to Christ and asked him to command us what to do. And we believe that he has answered. We believe that he wants us to step out courageously beyond our walls to give ourselves away as we have never done before. One woman who's been talking to her husband, and this is what we're asking everyone to do. Talk with your spouse, talk with your family, and discern what is God calling us to do. One woman said, you know the thing I love about beyond these walls? She said it, they have, that, that we have the courage to dream big. That we have the courage to dream big. And when your elders and your pastors are asking you to step out on faith, and it's a big step of faith to say, we want to eliminate five million bucks of debt over three years. Five million dollars. We want to eliminate that five million dollars and the 600,000 that you pay every year against the mortgage, we want to free that up and we want to turn it loose in serving our community and our region as we never have done before. When we ask you to do that, and we are, we are only asking you to do what we have already committed ourselves to do. Every elder on our session, every pastor on our session has already made this commitment. Cindy and I, as I shared with you before, we have committed ourselves to the largest gift by far that we've ever given to our church. And we have been joined in that by other leaders in our congregation. In fact, about 100 families have made advanced commitments. They said, we want to be early in the process. We want to make our pledge early and, uh, and offer encouragement to the rest of the church. And this group of 100 families, it, it, um, it covers the spectrum. There are some lay leaders who are able to write a large, large check, and they will. There are others who will write a smaller check, but for them it is just as sacrificial. So it covers the whole, um, the whole spectrum. But every elder, every pastor, staff members, all have joined in with these few dozen families to provide some encouragement, some inspiration to be the first ones out of the boat and to invite the rest of you to join us. Two weeks ago, that group came together in this sanctuary, and we worshiped God, and we, at the end of our time of worship and prayer and praise, we, we brought our cards, our commitment cards, up, and we laid them on the altar that was up here, the wonderful communion table that we can't have out here because it's too big. But we had it out that night, and we laid those up there. And then we laid ourselves on the ground in prayer. 
across the front here. And we prayed that the Lord would take our gifts. And especially for those of us who were a little frightened and a little stretched, that he would give us faith and courage. And that he would also inspire the rest of our congregation to join us in really a sacrificial and noble cause like this. And then when we tallied the results of those few dozen cards, uh, my mind was blown. It was a a response that even in my greatest faith I had not expected. I wondered if you would like to hear that amount that was pledged by your brothers and sisters that night. Any ideas? Any guesses? Think in your mind what it might be. The amount pledged by about 100 families was Two million six hundred and forty thousand four hundred and fifty dollars. Isn't that awesome? Uh, it inspires your pastor, I'll tell you that. Which means that with the gifts of about a hundred gifts, we are more than halfway to this what seemed like an audacious goal of eliminating $5 million. Now, we're still not there. You can see that we're only a little more than halfway there. So every one of us is going to have to to do our part. We don't want to take the foot off of the gas. But I just knew that you'd be thrilled by that response. However, the $5 million, as great as that would be, that is not our number one goal. What is our number one goal? Yes, would you say that together? 100% participation. That is our number one goal here. That matters more than even the number to me, that everybody in the church would be participating in that. This last week, uh, an elder and I were invited to come to a life group. They had a bunch of questions about this beyond these walls. And so said, we'll come. We're happy to answer your questions. And so we came and we sat with them for an hour or two. And one of the questions was, what do you mean by 100% participation? Okay, here's what I mean. 100% participation. I mean, everyone who counts this as their church, I'm not talking about visitors and guests, but everyone who considers Chapel Hill to be their church home, that they will participate. For some, this might mean a three-year sacrificial gift, as you've heard about already. And we need some more of those. For others, it might be a more modest one-time gift because of the circumstances in your life or, or you're still not even certain about this. That's okay. But because we're part of a family and because we're the, under the authority of the session, we would say we are all in. That is our dream. This is more than the vision of a few people, and it has to be more than the work of a few families. And it's going to change us as a church if every one of us steps up and says, every one of us, I mean you guys too, step up and say, we want to be a part of this. We want to participate in this. And all that we are asking is that you will do what Peter did in this story. What did he do? He said, Jesus, command me, and I will do what you tell me to do. Not what Mark commands you to do, not what the session commands you to do. We're saying, ask Jesus to command you, and then do what Jesus tells you to do. Step out in courage. In two weeks, we're going to bring our cards up to the altar as well. In two weeks. And um, these, they look like this. They were in your bulletin if you haven't already gotten one. 
I'd ask you to prayerfully consider this with your family, with your spouse. You know, work through this before the Lord and, uh, and make the sacrifice that you think Jesus is calling you to make. Fill out both sides. I'm particularly interested in this section. This is a step chart. And I'm, one of the things I'm going to be most excited is to see who falls in on that number one uh, green box at the bottom of initial giving. In other words, who began to participate in a journey of generosity with their church for the first time. We are going to celebrate that big time. Whatever that gift is, we're going to celebrate that gift. So would you... Fill this out on both sides. Continue to use the next couple of weeks to pray and talk. And I'm telling you, we're getting some incredible stories of people who are doing things that I, I think are astoundingly sacrificial. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what the Lord is going to do. Can you? And uh, because we uh, enjoyed so much the time with our life group last Wednesday, I want to offer you another opportunity. Next Thursday night, the session is going to host a town hall question and answer time. And that's the only purpose for it, is to answer any and all questions that you might have about beyond these walls. So I invite you to show up at 6 o'clock. Whoever's here, most of the elders will be here, and we will take your questions. We will try to be, answer it, because we want to be as transparent as we can. And frankly, because we're, we are excited about this vision. We think it is a noble, Christ-honoring vision that turns attention off of ourselves and onto the community and the region around us. We think it's something that's worth celebrating and trumpeting, and so I hope that you'll come We think it's courageous, and we invite you in these coming weeks to listen to the call of Christ, and whatever he tells you to do, I hope that you'll join us in stepping out of the boat. Let's have a prayer. Lord, I I love the gasp. I love the gasp when the number was revealed. It's the way I felt too. It's the gasp of people who are astounded once again of the way that you are generous to us, the way that you inspire your people to step up in courageous, unlikely ways. Thank you for those gifts, and thank you for what you're going to do with it, Lord. This is not about raising money. This is about raising disciples that make history. And and in the process, we're going to devote these resources to you. We're going to pay off this debt, and we're going to pour ourselves into multiplying life groups and releasing leaders and loving Gig Harbor like we've never done before. That's our vision, Lord. We think it is from you, but it is only if it is from you will it have life. And so we pray, O Christ, we pray that you give us permission, that you bid us come, and if you do, we will come.